First Timothy chapter four, please. First Timothy chapter four. I'm going to ask you another question. What are doctrines of demons? Woo! Now that's a topic to visit on. You who are visiting, welcome. We're thrilled to have you. Uh, I'm just so glad one of you told me the radio spot uh, drew your attention to our church. Thank you, Mark, for the radio spot. The weirdest ministry challenge I've ever received, it's not the worst, but the weirdest, is preach a sermon that will include the address of the church in one minute or less. That is a challenge. And it's really not or less, it has to be right at one minute. All right, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're covering verses 1 through 5 today. And I'm asking the question, what are doctrines of demons? And some of you are like, I don't know what doctrines are, and I'm pretty sure I don't believe in demons. Because I don't really know what all this is about, and so this is strange and foreign and weird and all that. Well, actually, we're in a war, and every page of the New Testament reminds us of this. We're in a war, and it's a war of ideas, and the ideas are described here as doctrines. Doctrines. Doctrine just means teaching. It means something that is taught. I just taught the children the doctrine of the local church. Did y'all catch that? The doctrine of the local church. Well, I have doctrines that better be from the scriptures. It better be what God says, not my ideas about it. I better be saying what I say from the text, God's doctrines. But there are other doctrines that are out there. Other things that are teachings from other sources. And that's what Paul is addressing today as he uh, continues to train Timothy to be pastoring in Ephesus, a very difficult mission field, which is rife with demon activity, including witchcraft and, uh, and, um, <clears throat> and divination and so forth. Part of the whole thing with this letter to Timothy is that um, He's telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.3 that he may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul is all the way through 1 Timothy, and I think the whole New Testament is always showing you there is a war on. There is a battle for the thinking of man and the thinking goes straight to the gospel. What do you do about the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose from the dead? What do you do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Doctrines of demons are opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be studying that today. Now, what are demons? You keep talking about a war, pastor. What, what do you mean a war? Are we going to go paint the front door camouflage? Are we at war? Go put some sandbags around the building? Some, some machine gun positions in the upper windows. I mean, I've thought it through. Um, <laughs> no, that's not the war we're in. The war we wage is not against flesh and blood in Ephesians chapter 6. That's not our war, 6, 10 through 11, the, the war, the, the full armor of God passage. It's a spiritual war, and the spiritual war uh, is introduced to us in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. When man is attacked by Satan in the form of a serpent, who is telling man to disbelieve what God said and act on that disbelief. Disbelieve what God said and act on that disbelief. That's what we're talking about in terms of the war. And the war rages. And I challenge you, we just did Mark on Easter Sunday. I challenge you to read through a gospel. And every time there's a reference to casting out a demon or some sort of demon interaction, I want you to make a note. Make a hash mark and see how much this occurs in the Gospels. It's a major feature of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in the four Gospels. What are the doctrines of demons, beloved? What are the doctrines of demons? You can probably start imagining things. Okay, it's opposed to God. 
It's from God's enemy, the, the devil and his fallen angels, those that, that are serving under him and their revolt, revolt against God. We read about that in, for example, uh, uh, Re Revelation chapter 12. What, what, is, what do you mean doctrines of demons? What are the doctrines? Well, okay, um, maybe uh, I don't have to obey God. Maybe all kinds of ideas you can come up with which are opposed to what God's word says. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, which we know means good worship toward God. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That'd be the core message of Jesus Christ incarnate who died for our sins and rose from the dead and is glorified at the right hand of the father. It's Christological in, in our focus. When you find something that's opposed to the biblical doctrine of Jesus Christ and his person and his work, I think you're finding doctrines of demons. One of the key things that we have to constantly emphasize if we're going to point you to Jesus Christ is the grace of God. The grace of God, that which God does for us, which we cannot do for ourselves, that which God does for us because of who he is, not because of what we've done, that which God does for us because he wants to, because he loves us, because he is the giver. And we are the recipients, we're the, we're the, we're the receivers. The grace of God is most clearly demonstrated in Jesus Christ, who came to die for your sins and rise from the dead to give you eternal life. And you didn't die on the cross for your sins, but if you trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you've been crucified with him and you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the salvation work of God in Jesus Christ that we're talking about. And that is being directly opposed in this passage under doctrines of demons. I, I suspect that if you watch closely and ask this question of this passage we're about to read, you will be surprised what Paul is going to describe as doctrines of demons. But it's going to tie right into Genesis 3. It's going to take us right back to the serpent and the woman in the garden. I promise. It's really awesome. I'm excited about it. Let's read it in the New American Standard. It says, first of all, can you, can you manage that? <laughs> I just, sometimes I switch the screen. I put the, the text on this side, that side. And then other times I put it on that side. And the engineer has to manage and I don't do that on purpose at him. I'm just trying to mix it up a little bit. The spirit explicitly says that in latter times, later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So the spirit says that's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is carrying along all the prophets to say exactly what he wanted them to say. Who's inspiring every word Paul writes, because Paul says, second Peter three sixteen is scripture. So, so the Holy Spirit says this is going to happen. This is Paul prophesying in the apostolic office. By means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by all those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. We just read about doctrines of demons. I am so excited about what he says here because I've always heard this phrase and I read through, are you, are you a reader through? Do you read through the Bible? It's good to do that. It's good to do that. But I like to focus in with you sometimes too, because well, all the time, because there's so much 
in every word of scripture. Every passage of scripture is so helpful. So let's get through, let's get into it in some detail. This is what I'll do. Visitors, what I do is I, tra- I, I read my Bible, but then I'll also translate from the Greek if it's in the New Testament or, or from the Hebrew if it's in the Old Testament, because that's how it works, because that's where the Holy Spirit inspired the, the, the text of scripture in those languages. And I'll do my best to, um, to establish which manuscript tradition to use and I'll do my translation work. And I find that if we'll sit down a little bit and mine what the text says, we find things we might not have seen. And if, and even if you don't say something new, I think meditating on the text this way is very helpful, but it's also very challenging. And, um, since it is so challenging, it's one reason I do it with you because it's hard to do on your own. If I say it this way, y'all, if reading your Bible if you're reading your Bible is um, just reading through, if that's, I think of that like kind of like the sap of a maple tree. You New Englanders probably know where I'm going with this. Reading your Bible is profitable and it's awesome and it's very good. And it's basically what I do with you when we're together. But if you spend time in it and study it out and dig, you're boiling down that sap into something that's, that you put on your waffles. All pancakes wish they were waffles. I'm absolutely convinced. Anyway, um, maple syrup is made from maple sap, but you have to boil it down. You have to spend time and it's a lot. And I forget the percent, like the, 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 it's like one to 20, 40 to one, 40 gallons of maple sap gets you one gallon of syrup. That's why people say, pastor, how long do you spend on your messages? 30 years. I can't tell you how long it took me to come up with this, but in terms of most recently, we're probably about 10, 12 hours a message. Because that's how it is. Pastor, you spend that long prepping in the, in, the, in the study. You spend long translating and working. Yeah, it's work. It's awesome. So let's do it. Let's, let's put something on our waffles here. The Spirit explicitly says. Now, this is important the way Paul says this. Because every word of Scripture is God-breathed. Every word is God-breathed. But the way God inspired some things to be written differs from the way he inspired other things to be written. The spirit is in every word of the text. That's second Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is God breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Every word of the old Testament, Paul says in second P second Timothy three sixteen. Second Timothy three sixteen. That's all scriptures. God breathed in second Peter three sixteen. Peter says that men, uh, twist the twist Paul's words as they do the rest of the scriptures. The apostle Peter says what Paul writes is the same as old Testament scripture. It's the same authority. It's the same source. So everything Paul writes and everything the new Testament apostles write is God breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness. What am I saying? I'm saying that sometimes Paul says the Lord told me And sometimes he says, not the Lord, but I say, and this is how it worked in Paul's life. This is an actual person who is actually living this spiritual life. And he has some horsepower as an apostle that we don't have. He has prophetic insight and apostolic authority that we do not have. We have what he wrote inspired by the spirit, but sometimes he got it by direct communication. The spirit explicitly says the Lord told me. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made for, uh, complete or brought to completion in your weakness in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12. The spirit is explicitly saying something. This is a prophecy like an Old Testament vision where they got the message and then they wrote it down. And that's what you have here. The spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, 
in Husterois Kairois. What's a Husterois? Well, let's don't be hysterical about this, but it's where you get the word history. Husterois is uh, the, da the date of Husteros is uh, a, me a word that can mean second. It can mean after or by a pretty good leap. You could say the last days, but it's better to be a little more vague and say in latter times at some point after this point. Which means that from now on in the church age, and Paul writes this somewhere around, you know, 5960 or something AD, beheaded by the, by the Roman lictor in 63 AD or so, I think. So somewhere in there, Paul is writing something that from now on, we're all watching history and saying, is this going to be in our day? But that's what he's talking about. In the latter times, some will apostasontie, they will me, they will withdraw. They will depart. The word does not mean go from a vertical point to a lower point, that, to fall away. It doesn't mean to fall. We have words for fall. We also have English translations that'll say fall away, but the word here means to, to separate from, to depart from. That's, that's what it means. And they'll withdraw from the faith. Now in 315, we just read that the church the local assembly of believers, the local manifestation of the universal body of Christ. When you get us together, we have elders and deacons. When you get this thing together, we are the pillar and the support of the truth. Some people will depart from that truth described here as the faith. Taste pisteos describing the objective content that you believe. Faith either means you're, you're believing or it means what you believe. In this case, he's talking about departing from the truth that we hold. The great mystery of godliness, which is Jesus Christ in his flesh, dying for our sins and rising from the dead. Some will withdraw from the faith. Why? Because they're holding fast, prosecco, to hold something to yourself. They're clinging on to something. They're holding fast to what? Deceitful spirits. Deceitful spirits. This is pneuma, spirit, and planos, to be deceptive, to lie. Lying or deceitful spirits. I don't believe this word spirit here means proposition. Sometimes the word spirit means something people think. Worldview or something here. I think it means personal beings that are lying to you. Personal beings who are lying to you. And I'm not necessarily talking about network news. <laughs> personal beings who lie to you. And what is the nature of the lie is what we're driving toward. And our question, what are the doctrines of demons? What do they look like? And I think he gives an example of doctrines of demons in the passage. Deceitful spirits and what they say, didascalia, daimonion, teachings of demons, these personal beings. So there's the lying, the spirits uh, uh, that are deceitful, and they're teaching doctrines of demons. What does doctrine mean? Does everybody know what the word doctrine means? Does Everybody know what doctrine means. It's a big word. It's a really important word. It's a word we love with all our hearts. But I was once told the doctrine is whatever I'm saying as a pastor, and that's not right necessarily. But doctrine is always teaching. It's always teaching. Doctrine is always teaching. Doctrine means teaching. That's all it means. 
And you can have sound doctrine and you can have doctrines of demons. You can have right things to, to, to listen to and believe and, and process and live. And you can have false things that you can believe and process and live. And remember the context in chapter three at the end, the whole point of all this is so that we know how to conduct ourselves in the household of the living God. It's not just so that you know it. In other words, it's so that you conduct yourself so that you live it. You know, it's, it's, it's just insane. The thought that you would become so knowledgeable of the scriptures of God, of the word of what God says, but not live the spiritual life. It's insane that you would do that. You would, you would focus on the text of scripture, which gives you everything you need for life and godliness, but you would never get to that point of living your life as worship to God. That's the Ephesian problem in Revelation chapter three. The church of Ephesus has sound doctrine, but they've left their first love. They don't love God. So they're not doing what it says. Some will say, well, pastor, you're just talking about works and now we're in legalism. Well, in this context, we are talking about legalism. But when I say doing the word, I'm not talking about you by your energy of the flesh or your sinful works being accounted in your heart as God's work. I would be saying, that the spirit of God, the Holy spirit who gave Jesus the power in his humanity to do the miracles that he did. That's what Jesus said, that the spirit is testifying to me in these works that I'm doing. And his message is that I'm sent from the father to save you. That that power of God that lives in you, the Holy spirit to do anything that God wants you to do and not anything that you just want, but what God wants you to do. You have the Holy spirit living in you so that you can be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24, Acts chapter one, you got the Holy Spirit so you can be witnesses for Jesus Christ. The idea that you would have this power at your disposal and you'd have the word in you, but you would not walk according to that power. You would not walk in the grace of God and do what God wanted you to do is unthinkable. Is it not? Were this an amening church and you know, you'd all be like, amen. Testify, hold up my Bible, hold up my Bible. Okay. I have a Bible app on my phone. I don't think the phone is the Bible. I have the Bible on my phone. All right. So he says doctrines of demons. And as I'm reading through, I'm like, okay, let's get past this. Hurry up. Get out of the, ho the Halloween section of demons and stuff. Listen to what doctrines of demons look like in verse two. By means of hypocrisy of liars. You got to deal with the N plus the data of hypocrisy. And the word hypocrisy hypocrisy in Greek means hypocrisy in English. In fact, it's a transliteration from the Greek into English to write the word hypocrisy. That's where we get the word hypocrisy right here. And it means, it means that you're wearing a mask and you're saying one thing, but you're being another. It comes from the old Greek, um, um, Sophocles, Euripides, uh, uh, dramas. And, and you could be out there wearing a mask that's smiling one of these theater masks, but inside, well, you're not smiling. You're not really smiling. Your mask is smiling. That's the idea uh, in the Greek world of the hypocrite. And uh, you can see how that comes to mean thinking one thing and uh, pretending to be another. Ever heard the claim that Christians are hypocrites? I don't like to go to church. You'll hear this from people that you invite to church. Oh, I don't like to go to church. And you don't ever want to put anyone under obligation. Just, just the power of an invitation. Hey, you want to come with me? I don't want to go to church because they're all hypocrites. And you need to say, when someone says that, you know, you're right. Just go with it. Just do a little spiritual judo. You know, you're absolutely right. You mean that they believe one thing, but do, do another, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, that's how they are. Like, yeah, 
Yeah, because it's wrong to do certain things, right? Yeah, it's wrong. Like to um, hate people or to steal or to lie or to do any of these things that, that, that we shouldn't do to people. Yeah, and they do those things, right? Yeah, do you do those things? Now, you're not going to get them to come to church, but, um, but it, might, it, might, it might be a helpful conversation. I mean, because the point is that everybody's a sinner. I mean, we're all sinners, but some of us are sinners saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the difference between someone that has Christ and someone that doesn't have Christ isn't that they're a good boy. It's that they have Christ. That's it. It's all about Jesus Christ. And yes, he's doing a work in us. He's sanctifying us. The spirit of God is bringing us more and more into the character of Jesus Christ. But that's not how we lead when we're talking about how we deal with sin. Do you know what I do with sin? You tell the, the person that's, you're talking, yeah, sin's a problem, but it's a problem with me and God. It's really about God. And Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross. You are two or three sentences, if it's a good, you know, friendly conversation from someone saying all Christians are hypocrites to telling them about Jesus dying for their sins on the cross. Oh, please go for that conversation where Christians are hypocrites. You're, you're so close to, so yes, we're sinners. Yes, we're sinners and we believe one thing and often we do another, but we're not supposed to. And we know that. And that's the cross. Jesus is the one without sin. He's the one that died for our sins. See what you do. It's very helpful, but this is what happens. You get these men that he's been talking about since chapter one, who are lying human agents that somehow have been infused with these doctrines of demons, the way doctrines of demons touch the body of Christ in first Timothy chapter four, verse two is human beings get involved. You hear them from people. I told you network news, not only the network news. I don't know how they get hold of these, these lies, but they do. And then everybody all of a sudden knows this thing that can't be true. Let me give an example of something that we all know that cannot be true. There is no essential metaphysical difference between you and a squirrel. There's no metaphysical difference between you and a squirrel because all there is is matter. And we have all evolved randomly from chemical processes, atoms bouncing off of each other from the, the goo to you. And so the squirrel is no metaphysically different from you as a human being. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows it, except that nobody really thinks that way. Nobody thinks you're a squirrel. Some of you are somewhat squirrely, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know if that's done up in Connecticut. Is that a thing up here? I've been here a while. I've never heard someone say that's pretty squirrely. That's a Texas thing. You could also say ladies are being horsey. There's all kinds of animal um, uh, 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 personifications. Do y'all know about horsey? A horsey that, I'm not saying anyone here is horsey, but there's a thing about a horsey woman. Anyway, um, I think it comes from being up on your high horse. Anyway. Uh, lipstick on a pig. Okay, great. Let's, let's get back into the text. Uh, <laughs> by means of hypocrisy of liars, there are humans now that are um, saying one thing uh, and practicing another. And I see this a lot. There's been a lot of talk about the morality of the, of the various personages that we put up in front of us as our leaders, that we want moral leaders and not people that are, you know, gutter dwellers or whatever. But I think that every time they put one of these people up in front of us and with a very few exceptions, it's like what flavor of gutter dweller are they presenting to us? 
you know, and um, I'm not ever, but personally in my political life, I'm never thinking of the leader as the pastor. I'm never thinking of the leader as that we're voting for as, as the Jesus figure. I never think that way about these people. I always think about which, which one of these people is going to do the least to restrict our liberties to proclaim Christ. That's the, which one of these is going to do the least damage to Israel? Which one of these people is going to, um, to shrink the overarching governmental crushing of people's liberties and they're, they're doing what they would with their private property. That's, that's how I always, I never think, well, well, who's the most Jesus like none of them, none of them. The last person that ran on the, the, the platform being a born again, Christian was Jimmy Carter. Hey, and we're back. Gas prices are going up. <laughs> so anyway, by means of the hypocrisy of liars means that there are humans that are involved. And so the doctrines of demons are coming through people, through, through mediation of false teachers. And this is what's true about these people. They've been seared in their own conscience. And that word seared is a rare word we find in the New Testament. And it's a, it's a perfect tense. It means it's already happened. So they're teaching these doctrines of demons. They're, they're lying to you because they have already had broken spiritual equipment. Their soul has been seared. Their functional, like, like their primary functional equipment of this conscience is not working properly. And this is not seared like a good steak, like you get the oven, you know, or not the oven, you can do it in an oven, but uh, you get the temperature on the grill to, to like 500 and you throw the steak on there that's been properly salted and, and seasoned and so forth. You put it on the grill for, I don't know, depends on who you're talking to, two or three minutes, and then you flip it and you do another two minutes and it's seared and it's done and it's perfect. Let's go do that. That'd be a good time. <laughs> But that's not the word seared here. This is seared like with a, with a poker. Seared like in the fire, perhaps a branding iron. A lot of people have said this means that they're stamped with Satan's mark or something. And I don't think that's what this means at all. This means that their conscience, th this immaterial part of you, your soul, your heart, the in in inner, you, the inner you, these words are interchangeably used throughout the Old and New Testaments. But inside you, there is this essential equipment called a conscience, sunidasis is the Greek word. And it means the capacity to compare two things is the etymology of this word. The ability to compare two things, sunidasis, bringing two thoughts together. The way your conscience functions in your inner you, the immaterial you, we talked about this in uh, chapter one, the goal of our instruction and the conscience. The inner you has principles that you have gotten in there either by things that you've been told, things that you've concluded from your reason or from your observation, or what we'd like it to be is God's word that you've been taught by the spirit of God and you've believed and he's reposed these truths in you and you've hidden God's word in your heart that you might not sin against him. And so your conscience is charged, is primed, is is, um, is uh, initialized by the word of God. That's the idea of the Christian conscience and the love from a pure heart. Now, these people have, all people have this capacity for the perspective of right and wrong. One of the great arguments for the existence of God is the moral argument. It's the argument from the existence of human conscience. You can read in the first chapter of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, a very helpful discussion of the apologetics of the defense of the faith and God's existence through the argument from morality, human morality. We all have this. You're seeing it portrayed all the time in the woke culture, the woke, the, the woke sphere of our new way of thinking about morality. And it is a new morality and it doesn't look like biblical morality very much at all, even though people will use biblical language to try to describe it. But the, the point is that everybody has in their, in their, in their soul, the capacity for principles that they think are true 
And then, then comparing that principle with any input is the function of the conscience. The conscience says, yes, this is a correspondence or no, this violates my conscience. What Paul is saying here about these men is that their conscience no longer functions. It's been seared like with a branding iron. It's been cauterized. Actually, the word is cautereo, and it's where we get the word cauterize, which is, I hope you know, it's, it's a, it's a, a survival medicine practice where, you, and, and in some, I know surgeons will use it in some applications today, but it's where you burn the flesh to close it up. And, where, and at that point of the burn, you may have stopped the infection or closed off the wound, but you've also made a lump of scar tissue that at best is numb. Can't feel it anymore. It's cauterized. At worst, it's healing and it hurts. Can't wait for those nerves to stop telling you that you got burned there. But that, that's what it means to cauterize, to burn. And, and so that's what's happened to these people's conscience. It doesn't work. And you're like, how can they think this and say this and, and present? Their, their conscience is broken. They, that, this is what happens. And so this is something for us to take note of. I want you and I, I want us to live in a, a, a fear, a godly fear of this happening to us, of violating our conscience enough times, destroying the proper function of your conscience enough times where it could truly be say it's seared. Watch what you put in front of your eyes. Watch what you approve of. Watch what you put in your ears. Because your conscience needs to say yes and no to things and right and wrong to things. And it's a delicate instrument. But these men have been seared in their consciences with a branding iron. Verse three, forbidding marriage. Dun, dun, dun. Here's the doctrines of demons, beloved, that Paul is talking about. These liars that are saying, this is the real thing. This is the real teaching. You know, Paul got you started, but I'm going to help you out. No marriage. Sounds bizarre to us. Ever heard of the shakers? Of course you haven't. They wouldn't allow marriage. They're gone. No, we've heard of them. They weren't marrying. They were making furniture, baby. Those people... I guess in New England, were, were this sect of people like the Quakers, but they, you know, it rhymes, Quakers and Shakers and temperature takers. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the Shakers were these people that didn't, didn't marry, but they did dance a lot. They would dance and that would be part of their, their worship service. You know, you wouldn't have this, this bank of pews. You'd have empty space and they get out there and dance. And that song, Simple Gifts, is an old Shaker song. And it's part of a colonial story of the, of our country. And I've seen some documentaries. There are still people claiming to be Shakers, but, um, they weren't born to it. <laughs> now they're famous for their workmanship because they believed in, um, doing everything you do with excellence to God. But they had in their teaching, this weird thing about not allowing marriage. And they might've gotten it from a misguided reading of first Corinthians chapter seven. He tells the widows and the widowers in first Corinthians seven, it's better for you to remain as I am. So you can do God's work. By the way, he's not talking to young people. He's talking about burning. He's talking to widows and widowers. First Corinthians seven, look it up. The first word is unmarried masculine. The next word is feminine widows, the male men and women in that category. Nevertheless, Forbidding marriage apparently is a doctrine of demons to say, do not marry. No, not, not to say a father to say, don't marry him. That's a bad decision. Don't do it to yourself. Please, please. Oh, please, please, please. And then 30 years later, you come back to yourself and say, please, please don't marry him. Something like that. This is not what we mean by forbidding marriage. This is where you say marriage itself 
is forbidden. It is not part of our practices. Do you know of any religious movements that have forbidden marriage for some or all of their participants? Have you ever heard of a religious movement that forbids marriage? Let me think with you real hard. Don't say anything, please. Well, I'll just think it together. Have you ever heard of a religious movement that forbids marriage? Thank you, Jerry. Paul says, that's not what I was talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. He says it's doctrines of demons to forbid marriage. Which just tells you people that say they're for Jesus and they represent Jesus Christ. We're trying to make pretty chairs as the shakers or whatever. It just tells you that we all need to take care thinking we stand lest we fall. We all need to look to ourselves and look to the Lord Jesus Christ and make sure we're walking with him. Because you can get wrong. You can get confused. Forbidding marriage is a doctrine of demons. Abstinence from foods. Abstinence from foods. This is not Pastor Dave's problem these days. Not as bad as it's ever been, but it's not great. I know. Abstinence from foods. It's this, this uh, infinitive here. Apekesthai. Apekesthai. Fairly rare word, but it means to, to not allow broma food. And then he goes off and discusses food a little bit. So these two categories don't fulfill the legitimate appetite for sexual satisfaction, which is only expressed in marriage and don't fulfill the legitimate desire for food, which is expressed in eating food Two legitimate human appetites. By the way, that's the way to think about these things. You do these things in moderation. You do these things appropriately. You do them as unto the Lord. You take them all as gifts from God. And when you separate sex from God's gift, you have found perversion in every case. And when you overdo food or underdo food because of some uh, disconnection from God, that's, that's a problem too. So watch what he says about abstinence, abstinence from food. These foods God created for sharing with thanksgiving. For those who believe and have known the truth, perfect tense of epigenosco to know, to have known. For those who believe, the believing and those who know the truth. Doctrines of demons. I was thinking it was going to say go to the gentleman's club, which is not a gentleman's club, or go to, uh, you know, drink too much or something else. No, the doctrines of demons that Paul is telling Timothy to look out for are asceticism. They're the, you're holy if you don't do this or that. I was surprised when I started d drilling down into this and asking that question. The forbidding of marriage, the absence from these foods, because every created thing of God is good. That's the literal order in Greek. Every created thing of God, meaning everything God created is kalos, is good, attractive, desirable. And nothing is rejected. When received with Thanksgiving, do you, uh, do y'all have the practice in your family of praying before you eat? You know, we call it the blessing. We also call it, uh, giving thanks for the food. Well, um, that's a very biblical idea. I've heard people say in, in recent years, well, you don't have to say in your prayers. You don't have to say in Jesus name. I pray at the end of your prayer. You don't have to do that. Well, I mean, okay, you don't have to do that, but we are challenged 
by the apostles to pray in the name of the Son to the Father in Ephesians chapter 5, giving thanks at all times to the Father for all things in the name of the Son. So you don't have to say you're praying in the name of Jesus, but you better be doing it. And I've also heard, well, you don't have to say the blessing. You don't have to pray over the food. That's a misreading. Every time Jesus eats in the Bible, in the Gospels, he says, thank you to God first. After a blessing, he broke the bread and said. He does it every time you watch it. It's, it's actually a thing. I, I recommend it because we're going to read in this context that it it's, uh, sanctifies the food. We set it apart to God and we thank him. Now think about what's going on theologically. I don't want you to just have legalistic practices. That's starting to be doctrines of demons where we just say, we th say the same blessing over the food. It's good to have habits. It's good to have routines, but it's more important to know why you do them. If you don't know why you do something, you might start thinking you don't need to do it. You get in the car, you put on your seatbelt. Get in the car, you put on your seatbelt. Stop knowing why. Maybe some, someday you don't you know, put on your seatbelt. It's really not that important. It's just something we do. We don't, we don't have to wear a seatbelt. Well, um, that's only if you want to be thrown clear, right? I mean, you, <laughs> you wear your seatbelt because uh, that's the best chance you have of survival when one of these awesome New England drivers um, does what they do. Does Pastor Dave advocate wearing seatbelts? I don't know about that. It's good to have habits. It's good to have routines, but it's more important to know why you do them. And giving thanks before you eat is actually a moment of worship to God and recognition of where you got this food you're about to consume. And I think it's a habit you should have for every good thing in life. Every good and desirable thing that God has given you came from him and you need to turn it around to him and say, thank you for it and acknowledge the source. You like the blessing, but it's not the same as the source. The source of that good thing needs to be given his due, our gratitude with thanksgiving, having received. So we thank God for the food and we eat it to him for his glory. For it, it is sanctified, that's hagiadzo, to set apart, hagiadzomai, it is set apart to God or sanctified through the word of God and petition. This is a strange, uh, a rare word for prayer in tuxoi, tu, in, in te, Uxeos. I really like when you throw all those vowels together and have to pronounce them differently. Entauxeos is the word for petition. It's really where you come and bring a request to someone. It's like you go to the king and we have this petition that we're asking. This is the bill that we're asking for the king to deliver on. That's the word. Now, uh, I thought we're saying thank you for the food. And this says we're asking for something. But that's exactly, it. not that how you say your prayer when you thank God for the food? We thank you for this we're about to receive. Let us use it for you. We thank you for this food we're going to receive. Let us serve you by it. Make it sanctified. We set it apart to you and, and use us for your service through this work. Yeah, that's what you're asking. You're thanking him for the food and saying, so let me stay on mission with it. And I got the idea of praying like this. I believe in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, when Paul says, pray for me. When Paul tells the Thessalonians to pray for him, do you know what he says he wants them to pray for? Pray for me that the gospel will expand and be glorious. The mission of the gospel will go forward. Pray for me that the gospel will go forward and that we'll be protected because from evil men. That we'll be protected so for our safety so that we can continue to spread this gospel. That's what you pray for Paul. 
And I think that's the way you think about the food. God, this is your food. You've given it to me. Thank you for it. Let me serve you by it. Over waffles with some good maple syrup or whatever. Now that's called circling back. <laughs> so the question I ask you, what are doctrines of demons? We started with the question. We end with the question. I don't know what to do with myself. It's only 1145. We have a couple of songs and a prayer. I think y'all are going to get to the cafeteria early today. That's a Texas joke. We don't have cafeterias up here. So that's what it is. It's the race to Luby's down in Texas when you get done with church. What are the doctrines of demons in this passage? In this case, it's asceticism. Masquerading as the worship of God. What is asceticism? You're like, well, you just gave me a bigger word. I'd rather just say doctrines of demons. Well, the particular thing is that it's saying if you hold back from these legitimate practices, then you're better with God. The monks in the desert sitting on pillars for, for months or years at a time, taking only uh, pea husks or something in little water every day. Like you're better with God because you're really, really denying yourself legitimate appetites. And by the way, the forbidding of marriage is absolutely about abstinence from sex. That's what it's about. Because sex is, as Augustine falsely taught, or Augustine, three and four hundreds, falsely taught that that is just a matter of lust in every case. And you have to do it to procreate, but it's only for procreation. No, it's a blessing that God gave us. Read the Song of Solomon. It's, the, it's a blessing that God gave us for marriage and only for marriage. And it's not just for procreation. It's for the enjoyment of one another. It's awesome. But see, if we don't engage in that, then we feel like we're holy somehow. And it's absurd. It's, it's a doctrine of demons. Now think about this one step further with me. In this case, the doctrines of demons are telling you that to be holy, you deny legitimate satisfaction of appetites in the way God gave you to fulfill them, especially with marriage. You're denying that legitimate expression. So you're more holy because you don't, uh, you don't eat, eat to, to be satisfied or you don't enjoy marital bliss and so forth. That that makes you more holy because you're denying yourself something. Does that sound like anything that we've heard before? That you have a God who wants you to hold back from legitimate appreciation, le legitimate enjoyment, that God is holding back the goods from you and that for you to really connect to him, you really have to deny yourself legitimate joy. I'm saying legitimate goods. I'm not talking about being a hedonist. Does that sound like anything you've heard before about God? It's the original doctrine of the original demon. I mean, Satan is the, the leader of this band of recreants. And his first word to man is that God is holding back from you what you could be because he's petty and a holder backer. I'll just read it. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now listen to his logic. You've got to trace his logic because it's all in, in implications. The woman said to the serpent from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it nor touch it or you will die. Now she added to what God said for whatever reason. Don't eat from this tree. The one prohibition. Now listen. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. He directly contradicts God's word. That's how we know 
before we get to Revelation 12, and that's, that clenches it, but that's how we know this is Satan, because he directly contradicts God's word. And now you have to decide which one you believe, and she chose the wrong one. But listen to Satan's explanation for why it's okay to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because you won't die, he says. Now listen, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God knows that you will get more power than he wants you to have, is what he's saying. He will be, you'll be more like him than he wants you to be. So the implication is that God is holding back legitimate enjoyment from you. He's holding back the good things from you. That is the original lie that Satan told about God. And that is in the hearts of unbelief. Anytime we're experiencing unbelief, God is holding back what I might otherwise have because he's being mean. It's a slander of God. This is why Satan means adversary and devil means slanderer. Old Testament, Satan, New Testament, slander, the, the devil. It, these words mean opponent by slander. God is the one who wants to reward you. He rewards those who diligently seek him. He's the one who eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, all, or, or hasn't entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. God is the one standing by for you like David to say, my cup runneth over. He anoints my head with oil. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's the God of the banquet. He's the God of the big party every year in Israel. He's the God of love one another as I've loved you. Now, trust me. And then when you practice it, watch this. See if it's not the best enjoyment you've ever had in your life when you just do what God said to do and the power he gave you to do it. Oh, we have to love one another. Oh, we have to go to church. Oh, we have... Everything God wants you to do is the very highest and best that you can't even imagine. For a little kid, it's a perpetual go-kart. It's a, it's a trip to Six Flags every day. It's a birthday party when you're seven years old that you can't wait because there's going to be cake. That's what, that's what the word of God tells us about God is that he has joy for you that is inexpressible and full of glory. And Satan's lie is that he's holding back. And then Satan's deception goes into this field where if you hold back, then you'll be closer to God. He's got all kinds of ways that he can contort the truth of God. But asceticism is the one Paul seizes upon, apparently in the historical circumstance. Asceticism is not the Christian way of life. Wantonness and license isn't either. But the liberty we have in Jesus Christ because of the gospel and the work of the spirit in us is equipping us for a joy inexpressible and full of glory with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we want the joy that your scriptures describe that must be experienced to fully be appreciated. We're in a world of deception and distraction. One of the great distractions of our time, Father, is fun. And fun is great, but it isn't joy. And it has its place, but it so often chokes us out. It is such a distraction. And it becomes a distraction from the joy you want us to have. Father, it is our prayer. We would enjoy everything that you want to give us. We would not miss out on anything that you have for us. And we know that the source, the life, the joy of this spiritual life you've given us as believers comes from our attention to your word. Your spirit's working that word in us.
the edifying of us into the character of Jesus Christ, the maturation of our spiritual lives into the function of mature spiritual gifts, the loving the body and the teaching to keep all that Jesus commanded, the loving of the non-believer in terms of sharing Christ with him or her. Father, we want to be about this work, avoiding the doctrines of demons, being the pillar and ground of the truth as we come more and more to understand it. Father, help us all fall in love every day with your word and more importantly with you. Help us all see the joy and the richness of your word as we study it out together. Help us become more and more comfortable being for the praise and glory of your name. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.